Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 463 of Constructed Criticism. I'm your host, Easy, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Abe Stein. That's me. And Mason Clark. I love the ring. Yeah. What yeah. do you love? What do you love about the ring? I love that it is strong and it goes in a lot of decks and you feel powerful, but you don't always win when you play it. There's like clear counterplay. It's cool. Well, we will be talking about a little bit of Lord of the Rings today. Because today we are talking about modern after Lord of the Rings has been introduced. We have a weekend with a 10k, some modern challenges, and a lot to talk about. But before we do, we want to talk about always improving. It is the point of the show. Every week on the show we do what we can to improve as magic players and share that with the listener is. You know, you at home join us in this journey, Abe, of always improving. And you weren't here last week, and I want to know about what you did in your journey to be always improving this week. Yeah, so um, this week for always improving, I actually have been doing a lot of planning of my, like, where I want to be focusing my efforts for, uh, like, the upcoming weeks. Since I have um decided to defer um my pt invite from the rc and i'm just waiting on really waiting on to hear back from um from organized play that that's like gone through i'm in a kind of unique position of not having tournament magic that is going to be extremely relevant to me for quite some time right like the the next pt is going to be quarter one of 2024 um and the RC, like, yeah, I could play, like, I'm going to play it, and I'm going to, like, you know, obviously I got World Spot, and, like, won the RC would be great. I'm going to compete in it and, like, do my best, but the Pro Tour qualifying for, I'll already be qualified for. So the amount of, like, real pressing incentive to be achieving something has kind of um, gone away. And so for now, that gives me the very unique opportunity, I feel like, in Magic to not have the temptation of I want to have this result more than I want to improve at something. And so I'm really going to be making the most of and thinking about making the most of the time I have between now and like six to eight months from now when I'm playing, um, you know, my first pro tour in multiple years. So, um, yeah, just really like taking in that realization, um, working with it to, to figure out where it is I want to improve. Like I'm really restarting my own kind of my own coaching process with myself where I like go through my fearless magic inventory, figure out where I want to improve, how I'm going to approach that. Um, and getting the steps in motion to be doing more with this opportunity I have. So that's what I've been doing this week. That's awesome, man. It's always nice when you get a moment to like take a step back in games like magic where, uh, you know, sometimes you're so involved in the grind that you, you know, what's the, what's the term? You can't see the forest through the trees. Um, and to kind of like get to, you know, immerse yourself and enjoy that mo that that process is really fun. Hundred percent. Mason, what about you? My interview moment this week comes from sort of the lack of cards on MTGO. So I really wanted to play one ring and half playing, and I even had a couple Orcus Bro Master decks, but I couldn't rent those. But I could get the living in cards, the commons, and there was a lot of good results with 14, 15, 16 land living in decks. And I was already telling people in coaching and writing and saying that, like, hey, I think living in is well positioned right now. And I was like, well, 
living in, you know, maybe just got, at minimum, you know, we'll probably put one of these in our deck, you know, even if the 14 lands doesn't end up working out. But I'm going to go play living in. This is a great time to do it. It seems like it's strong, and this is a good spot for me to practice and work on this deck, which is that I don't normally play a lot. And honestly, you know, I could very easily pick up the uncommons I need, but it's not something that's like, unless I think it's the best thing for a tournament I really care about, I probably won't play in the local modern events, despite thinking it is very, very good, because I just wouldn't have as much fun as I would with something else that's maybe a little bit worse. So I decided to spend the time and stream that and interact with chat, and I had a lot of people who play a lot of living in come in and kind of help me and talk me through something like, this is what sideboarding looks like. Because I don't know if you ever sideboard the living end deck. Once you get past kind of card number two, it gets really big into like the, whoa, what are we doing? Does still make our deck work kind of situation. And I learned a lot of little things about the deck and really enjoyed my time playing living end. A lot more than I thought I would. You know, um, I just mentioned how I probably wouldn't play in the bigger event, but I did have fun with it in a very similar way I do with mono green, where it's like optimizing for every turn, thinking through your head, setting up the game plan, which is really fun. And playing a 14 land deck was a real novelty. I don't think I've ever done that. Uh, in any format, let alone, you know, a constructed one. And uh, it, it was nice. It actually felt really good to be playing, like, a low land count with a high number of land cycles in a way that I was not expecting. Yeah, I think the last time I played a 14-land deck was Mono Red and Limited in, like, <laughs> you know, years ago. So Yeah, it was good. I, I was going to talk about it later in the episode, but yeah, it was nice. What about you, Spencer? Yeah, so last week on the show, I kind of talked about the... Um, you know, playing Explorer and trying to, just in the time that I had, um, to get my bearings on Monogreen and try a bunch of different stuff out and get to a list that I was, like, really comfortable with. And on um, Thursday during our team testing um, with with my friends in the cut, uh, one of the, we were coming up with a list, and we ended up just on the list that I had in the deck box, like, in front of me, um, just mm -hmm. from like process of elimination things that we liked things that we didn't like uh it was really interesting and from that testing i also learned something that mason and i kind of talked about last week is that your when you're playing something like explorer where you don't have oath of nissa or the chain veil you get to learn more things and try more things out and from doing that i saw opportunities to combo off in different ways that my teammates did not see whether if it was infinite prelude chronos tokens or getting infinite mana before we get the chain veil so that we can actually get the chain veil and still combo off that turn um later in the turn and stuff like that and it was an always a proving moment in when i had to explain the like what i saw to my teammates who didn't see it and also um you know be comfortable like slowing the games down and, and stuff because i was not the pilot in in this testing i was uh, actually the the bird in this one and so, you know, being able to say, uh, you know, they, you know, they, they were talking about like a chain build turn. And I was like, you actually, you know, with this exact, you have, you should have exactly infinite mana and life this turn. Um, one of the things that's really interesting is my teammates and I don't really see testing the exact same way. So, for example, um, they didn't want to go make a bunch of mana and gain a bunch of life because it was MTGO. And that is primarily like, for example, where Quentin plays most of his magic um he wanted to figure out if there was a faster way to win uh without having to you know make 2000 mana so we actually got to even go further down that turn into like okay well if you make this much mana grab the chain veil what are your options from there um so it was really interesting that's awesome yeah also that makes me want to say that i hope that mtgo is a feature where it recognizes when you've demonstrated a loop 
and allows you to complete the loop. That would be really cool. Just programming macros all the way in. Well, like if you've demonstrated a loop like five times, like taking the same game action, you should like you should be able to write code that says this can happen X number of times. And if X equals infinite, you should like ask the person if they want to do it infinite times or how many times they would like to do this loop. I agree that ideally that would be great. In MTGO's next life, perhaps. Well, no, they have they have new a whole new team on it, so I don't know. I just think that'd be a cool feature. It would be a cool feature. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that is going to do it for hashtag always improving. Uh, let's go on to Patreon shoutouts. We have none. I think we have none this week. Um, but if you want to support the show directly, head on over to patreon.com slash ccmtg. There was a ton of discussion this week in the Patreon Discord, whether it be modern, standard, uh, and pioneer. All of them got love this week as people are you know, trying, you know, whether it's their, what are the events called the are like the energies? What are those? They're called the showdowns. No, the, the term for like the, RCQ? the, the RCQs that uh, destination, destination events. events. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So whether it be people preparing for their destination events or getting ready for their RCQs, a lot of conversation happening and a lot of conversation happening about kind of what's going on in the format we're going to talk about today. So it's been really cool to see. Uh, and you can join that Discord by becoming a patron of $5 or more over at patreon.com slash gcmtg. Don't forget to check out the swag store over on the main site. That is a great way to support the show while also sharing your love for it, whether it be a shirt. I'm getting a desk mat this week. Um, I'm ordering a desk mat this week. Mason and I talked about that last week, and I like was like, you know what? I'm actually going to do it because like I actually want one of these. Um, yeah. So pretty cool stuff. And then you also, if you're a patron of $5 or more, you also get access to a discount right there in the Discord uh, on that merch. So, uh, and then finally a reminder that we are doing a soft launch with Mythic Gaming. Meaning if you, the listener, have some art skills or an idea, we are launching our first ever official play mat with Mythic Gaming on their website. But we want to invite the listeners just like we did with our logo to kind of join in that process. If you have something you like, we're going to give out a hundred dollars um, to the, 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 the one that's picked uh, as well as make sure that your signature is on that play mat for everybody to see. So I, I have one ready. I'm going to share. I, I haven't shown it to Mason or Abet, but it's a boomer play mat, like very boomer. So like squadron Hawk boomer or like, uh, yes, like there, that era of boomer. Yes. Okay. I'll send it. I'll send it to you during the show. So not not wild mongrel boomer. No, it's not like a. It's not. It, it is very. It is specifically Jace the Mind Sculptor boomer. And with the one. Oh, ring, you mean bad ring? Yes, I, that was going <laughs> to say. With the one, I was going to make the exact same joke. Uh, with the one ring out, it's the perfect time to sunset Jace the Mind Sculptor with our. Can you imagine? In like ten years, someone's gonna be drafting a cube, and there's gonna be a pack where they have the One Ring and Jace, and some Magic Zoomer of that or Gen Xer of that age is gonna look at it and be like, "Yeah, I just don't know why I take Jace ever in this pack. You should probably just cut it for the cube." Dude, and it, some Boomer's heart just dies. As the, the card thing is, is like I remember Power Cube drafting for the first time, and we were like debating how many cards you would take over Jace the Mind Sculptor, like just straight up. It's like. The Power Nine, maybe not Time Twister, 
uh, Jace, like, and, like, Karn and Sol Ring were, like, the options. And that was, like, it. I'm so old. I, <laughs> I, I feel that in my bones. <laughs> <laughs> then today on Twitter, somebody's like, yeah, so, like, the one ring invalidates Jace the Mind Sculptor, right? How did we ever play this card? Oh, man. Anyway, if you have a playmat idea, shoot it to ccmg.info.gmail.com and let us know. But let's dive in to the training rounds this week. We are talking about Modern. Modern is the next RCQ format. Um, it's the, the thing that if you're going to stay in competitive magic, we have a lot of people who got in to Pioneer and they're playing and they want to know, like, what's the next thing, right? Um, I think, Mason, you mentioned a lot of the people that you coach. They came in from Arena, then they jumped into Pioneer and kind of this is the next progression. I actually had the same thing. I had a lot of people who were very confused that like the the standard format that they were playing on Arena wasn't the thing that they were going to jump into competitive magic with when I was coaching and had to teach them like yeah that, like you're going to be playing Pioneer here's the decks here's like the affordable decks here's the kind of the things that are analogous to the things that you've been trying um, but today we're going to dive deep into what's going on in Pioneer uh, specifically between the the two MTGO challenges and the uh, the energy. Uh, should we talk about the, I, I posted a tweet in our Discord today from, does anyone know how to say this name? I have thought about this in the past. I'm not, yeah, I would just go with that. It's Y-A-H-L-A-N-A-E-L on Twitter. I'm not trying to say your name. They're, they're, the, the second, the A, if it's Y-A-H-I capital A-N-E-N-A-E-L for what it's worth. But I just yeah, I think it's credited for this. Is. Yeah. But so, what is this that we're talking about, Spencer? Yeah, so this is some data that was uh, basically the, uh, all the events top 32 between 620 and 626. So today. Um, and you know, it's kind of looking at both, and what we'll talk about this is looking at win rates, it's looking at metagame share, and kind of like how the decks are doing after Lord of the Rings came out. Uh, is there anything that you guys see from this initial data, like this is kind of the first big piece of data that was, you know, I saw on Twitter that you guys want to talk about? Yeah, number one, I want. To, I mean, I know Abe has some thoughts on it, but I will just sort of start with the big outlier in all of this, and it's Yogmoth, formerly known as Swagmoth, is the best deck by a large, large margin. If you were to trust this data, one hundred percent, and everything that involves with it, it is has an eighty-one point seven percent win rate according to this, which, mind you, would be the best deck in Magic: The Gathering history if this data was one hundred percent right by a significantly large margin. And with a six percent metagame share. Um, yeah, so, so there's a couple of things here. Is and this was something that I wanted to ask on the podcast because uh, I was trying to dive through and I didn't see this on Twitter. This is the top thirty-two metagame win percentage against the rest of the top thirty-twos, right? Um, or is it there? It's overall win percentage from overall those top win percentage from this the top thirty-two. Yes. So it's not including any Yog players that didn't top thirty-two. Correct. Uh, correct. Yes. None so of the like, data. Uh, none of the data sampled includes any player on any archetype that was not in the top thirty-two, which is why the lower bounds on that data. If you're looking at the, if you go and look at the tweet, yeah, the itself, tweet will be in the show notes, by the way. Right. the The lower bound is burn, which had like one player who had a sixty-seven point four percent win rate, right? Because they went because they top like, thirty-two. 
Yeah, right. So all of your data is kind of skewed towards the higher finishes. So like the win rate stuff is not super... It's hard to gauge. It's on a different scale than what it looks like based on the numbers. Right. Um, it's it's kind of on a scale based on on representation. Yeah, like when talk about this Jogmok data specifically, Zerk, who we'll talk more about on the show later, is sort of like imagine if you think about misplaced ginger when it comes to red, black, and pioneer. This is kind of the Jogmok player of modern. Zerk just plays Jog all the time, innovates it, and pushes the archetype forward. And about I believe three weeks ago, added Arboreal Grazer and Golgari Rock Farm to the deck as a way to have you know a mana dork and accelerate a little bit and that really pushed the deck forward and i believe won a challenge and top aided a challenge on the same weekend and then top eight another challenge and then this weekend as we'll talk about later completely rebuilt yawgmoth and then won this challenge so a lot of the yawgmoth data is actually coming from zerk and the author of this tweet actually jokingly makes a a, a joke tweet at zerk saying please stop doing so good you're making yawgmoth look like the best deck ever uh and you know uh, zerk is really carrying a lot of that weight because like we mentioned only the top 30, like only if you make a top 32 this data get shown because they can't really find that data on MTGO anywhere else. You know, there's like 300 people in or whatever. We don't know about all the Yawgmoth players that didn't do well and all the Tron in it, blah, blah, blah. So, well, that, that's, actually is a piece weird of, that's actually the piece of data that I wanted to talk about next was the one ring in Tron. Um, and, and Tron specifically getting a very much higher metagame percentage than it's had for a long time just for people to be trying the one ring in it and i was kind of curious as you guys thoughts on that i think the one ring is very good in tron um tron sort of has a problem where you are very good at doing or getting your mana and then you need a thing to do and the ring is a really good way of like all right you've got tron mana you can play this thing and get sort of a couple of redraws at a big thing and when you find the big thing you sort of take over the game so i think the ring makes a lot of sense in the deck um and i'm you know i, I think we're going to see the ring in the, all the tron barons like etron as well as a deck that has a similar ish problem uh maybe we wouldn't play four in the main deck but you know i, I think we're going to see a bunch of this i'm curious to know what abe's thoughts on this are yeah i mean i think that as something that's been kind of the case for tron forever is that the better that your tron deck is when you're not able to just assemble Tron or like your Tron man is getting interacted with or like there's a blood moon effect or whatever. The better your deck is at operating under those conditions, the better your deck is. And the more that people are trying to do things like play a more prolonged game in order to take advantage of cards like the one ring, um, the better Tron gets as well. So I like it's kind of kind of gains from both ends. And the one ring itself in like Tron has ways to get rid of the card. Ways to gain life to mitigate the burden of it, and a ton of ways to use a ton of cards and color like and has a ton of colors mana to use it. So the card just fits really, really naturally. Um, and also can like I don't know how many times I mean I don't know my personal experience playing Tron, there's been a lot of times where it's like, okay, I spend my whole turn using this O stone to like get to the position where I can kind of take over the game just because I need to, like, untap with my 10 and cast my Ulamog. It doesn't really matter what I'm O-stoning. I just need to stay alive. And the One Ring kind of does all of that effect and more. It just plays a lot of different roles um, to help out the Tron deck. And, and any amount of Tron variance is going to benefit from that. Yeah, I actually think that um, I was I was thinking about kind of other, other, like, what types of deck the One Ring would fit into after last week's podcast. And the... You know, we, we had kind of talked about, like, taking turns decks and things. That was, like, actually just, like, any ramp deck 
it makes a lot of sense in that's like actually either like a ramp deck or a big mana deck um like one of the decks that i thought about was like does this i know this is an age-old question i'm gonna get so much hate uh on twitter for saying this but like big red was a deck that came to mind as like uh you know that's a deck that often needs a lot of cards it needs turns it needs like that type of stuff and naturally like tron uh, mason tried to tempt me with uh scape shift today uh i just think that like those style of decks are kind of where it fits the best 100 also i think you know on your big red line fires invention into the one ring is a pretty powerful one two buckaroo yeah absolutely yeah, yeah oh my I mean... god <laughs> 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 yeah, bit, bit, now, was it the one-two buckaroo line, or was it the one-two combo that got you saying that? I mean, it's it was the one-two buckaroo line because I don't think the Firesmith is a modern playable card, but <laughs> yeah, you know, I don't either. But it is a card that big red decks play. So yeah, I I, I think that uh, you know, let me let me I'll say this: if you've ever registered Bloodbraid Elf outside of Boomer Jund. This card is probably doing a much better thing at what you were trying to do in that Bloodbraid Elf deck. Yeah, we actually saw the Ponza deck do pretty well with some 5-0s and some pretty deep runs and challenges where, you know, they just go like uh, Arbor, uh, sorry, Arbor Elf into like Utopia Sprawl, play the ring. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Pump out, you know, and it's a thing where the ring kind of asks you to have like a lot of mana. This is something that I think a lot of four-color players didn't understand when they built their decks for the energies this weekend is when you have the ring in your deck, you need to have ways to dump the cards and use them. So the Evoke Elementals are stronger, and actually cards like Risen Reef are better than Nissa because you want your three-drop thing that bridges you to actually get a land to have that mana each and every turn to reuse. So I, I think you know we're seeing some growing pains as players get used to sort of what is it like to play with the, the ring, what does the ring actually ask of you? Um, you know what I love about podcasting with you two? I make a joke about the Ponza deck. I don't name the Ponza deck, and Mason continues the conversation naming the Ponza deck. I think the Ponza deck is great. <laughs> I, I, I have like the I, I have a lot of five O's with Gruel on uh, Magic Online. It's like kind of my pet deck to go back to. I just don't play like Blood Royal from Friends. I do have always main deck Bone Crusher Giant, which stops the One Ring, and that's all I'll say on that. We can move on now. Uh, are there any key results? I mean, should we should we talk about the Zerk deck really quick? Yeah, we definitely can talk about the Zerk deck. Um, so the Zerk went and kind of redefined Yawgmoth this weekend, or at least a new variant of it. So what Zerk did is went in there and took cards like Strangled Geist and Eldritch Evolution out of the deck, and then added in the One Ring, the uh, Halfling over some of the uh, like Birds of Paradise, uh, and then added Orcish Bowmaster, and kind of created like a black green mid-range deck with a combo in it and so there are less ways to sort of pop off and do your like bounce on undying creature because you only have the four young wolves but in exchange you don't have to play cards like strangle root geist anymore which was always sort of this card that like yeah it's better than it looks but it's not particularly great and orcish bowmaster is really strong against things like ragavan which is sort of you know a real like card in the format and while your deck was already kind of good against that with young wolf it didn't mean you just always beat them. You know, it's not like, well, my deck has Young Wolf. I win for sure, you know. So uh, it redefined the deck and really made it more of a mid-range deck with a combo. And I think it, it time will tell if it's the best way to build Yawgmoth, but I think no matter what, it is a valid way to position your Yawgmoth deck on a given weekend. Yeah, yeah I think... Okay. I think that there's something really, really 
interesting going on with how Zerk is kind of redefining Yawgmoth. I mean, you said earlier about how he played that like Arboreal Grazer um, and Rod Farm build, and it really like seems like Zerk is leaning into a similar mentality to what happened with Legacy Elves over the last few years, which the deck has gone from being this more combo-y, like, I'm going to make a bunch of mana and do my thing, glimpse of, like, tribal elf deck to embracing the engine within it. And in this case, that engine is that, like, Yawgmoth is a card that will just take over the game, right? Um, Court of Calling for Yawgmoth is, like, one of your strongest plays, or even just the Court of Calling utility. Like, that card is actually the defining card in your deck and not um, not really, like, being all in on getting Yawgmoth into play. And so these cards, right, like, Halfling lets you be insulated against Ren and Six, something that I'm sure the Arboreal Grazer move was about, right? Um, uh, Bowmasters itself kind of allows Yawgmoth to have that same level of like, it's kind of like having your own Renin Sixes in a way, right? Like, in the way that you need just a little bit way, a little bit more of a way to interact and a little bit more of a way to generate a tangible advantage. Like, it's doing both of those roles um, in the deck because it's generating you an extra permanent for your Court of Callings, and it's also interacting with the board in a way that the deck doesn't do particularly well. I think that all these things together with just all of these new cards really show to define, like... Yeah, it's really showing how... Um, all these new cards are really impacting the format and really taking like the newer rules of engagement that some of them bring, right? Like Delighted Halfling is a card that is so powerful when you have legendary cards you want to be resolving and you have a need for mana. Yawgmoth already a mana dork deck that's taking advantage of that. Yawgmoth itself somewhat liable to right like Merktide's counter spells or things like that and pushing that through, pushing a one ring through you know, getting those things down ahead of schedule is just playing more into the strengths of Yawgmoth and having these other tools to kind of broaden the scope. I think really it, like, made this deck able to pivot into what that, like, potential is that you were speaking to, Mason. I think that that's, like, as we see, um, you know, modern kind of adapt around what's going on, it's going to be interesting to see how Yawgmoth, especially in these builds, which is doing so many of these new rules uh, all at once, is able to either hold on or adapt even further to, to how people are adapting to those things going on. Yeah, you mentioned most of the things that I wanted to talk about with this list, but I also kind of have a, a, a couple of things. You know, the one, I want to just say we should pour one out for everybody who has like the 7th edition Birds of Paradise that they bought for this deck that are like foiled. Like, I'm really sorry about that. Uh, delighted halfling is definitely here to stay. Um, I think that it is, it both does, like Abe said, what the grazers were trying to fix, but does it actually much better? Um, where it like gets to easily let you cast turn two gris, but also can still help you cast early yagma. Like it does, it does it all while being a, just a straight up mamadork rather than having to have something else to enable it. Uh, the other thing that I will say uh, that I really like that Ape said that I just wanted to hammer home is, like, the Court of Calling comment. I, I think that if you kind of look at the way that this deck is built, it has become a Court of Calling deck, whether it's the Prosperous Innkeeper, like, just the number of one-ofs. And really, like he said, taking a step back from just having a combo, like, there's only one Blood Hunters. There's only, there's only one Innkeeper. There's, like, all of these things. 
uh, add up to, you know, it's it's about finding the pieces at the right time, and I really like that. And I also think that like uh, delighted halfling and ignoble and wall of roots also make this kind of a rampy deck, right? Which it, it always has been in, in some aspects, but it really links to the one ring. Um, the yeah, I wonder if ignoble even make it. By the way, like long term is long term, try to just to. Yeah, I, I have the opinion that Birds of Paradise and Friends have been bad now for like a year. And I think that like Arboreal Racer, I, I have thought for a while it's better than those cards and Dirt kind of proved that to me. And now I'm looking at this, I'm like, well, you know, we have three Ignobles. What if those were three Arboreal Racers? You know, like the couple of Gregory Rod Farms and a couple of Colony Gardens are actually kind of good in the deck. They're things you kind of want. Cloud and Mulligan a bit more. So one, I, I don't know, we'll see long term. One of the things that's really interesting that I don't really know that we mentioned kind of what Orcus Bowmasters was replacing here, but it very much is like Stranglerout Geist. Um, and one of the reasons for that, right, is that Delighted Halfling doesn't actually cast Stranglerout Geist. And so, you know, making sure that you have the right mana is really important. The other thing, it, though, is that Orcus Bowmaster already does something that Stranglerout Geist already did that's really important, which is keep your creativity matchup insane like actually one of your very 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 best matchups and what's really interesting is the second best performing deck according to the data was creativity which a lot of people think is the best deck in modern but that deck gets dumpstered by this deck like i don't know if the listeners have played that matchup but it it is literally the worst matchup in modern um and i think that orgus bow Masters only makes it worse so Yeah, to, to come on the creativity deck, it's sort of the one deck that didn't get anything yet from uh, Lord of the Rings, right? Like, when you look at the results, no one has many cards splashed in there. Stern Skull is a card we talked about as maybe something that's going to come in there long-term, but right now it made a lot of sense that players are a little hesitant to, as you know. So the perception uh, is Rhinos and uh, this creativity deck are 1A, 1B, sort of depending on the week. Um, and this deck is just really good. Like, it might not have gotten anything, but it puts a lot of pressure on the format and asks a lot of you. And I don't have a whole lot to say because I think everything we've said in the past about this deck is true. But if y'all have anything you want to say, I just think if you're like, oh, you know, no one's talking about creativity or whatever, it's like, yeah, it's because like, there's not much to say. It didn't change much, but it's still quite good. Well, the only thing that I have to say about creativity is the same thing that I have to say about Murktide, which is that I am a little surprised to see none of the new counter spell in any of these decks. I think that's a symptom of players being anxious about, like, because specifically creativity and Rhinos. I actually right? do think that that card specifically does help the 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 this this matchup that we're talking about, which is your worst matchup. And so, if you have now new ways to build creativity that include a card that actually help your worst matchup, and that is really interesting to me. Yeah, I mean, I think that part of it is too like, sure, this is like your one of your worst matchups and is very tough, but. It's not like before, like in the last two weeks, like, yeah, Yawgmoth has like really popped up and Zerk's done a lot of work on it. But before that, it wasn't necessarily the most popular deck. In, fa in fact, it's like been pretty fringe for a while. So like the kind of uptake on a, on adaptation is going to be kind of slow, in my opinion, on, on those things. But seeing like now that, yeah, every card that matters in this deck is a card that will get Stern Lessened, right? And this deck is like... It's getting to be a mana dork deck, and one of the things that I'm feeling about the format in terms of like how good, you know, how good halfling is, how good um, the one ring is, how important it is to be able to punish like the decks doing these things on the red axes is that like cards like lightning bolt 
have just somehow gotten even better in the format. Um, you know, and cards like Stern Lesson that are able to just be versatile answers, right? As people are willing to invest more mana in their cards, it's going to be more important to be able to interact with them. And so um, I would not be surprised to see as over the next coming weeks, as we kind of see the way the threats line up, that those answers start to play in it, into that too, Spencer. Yeah, I mean, and you just mentioned cards, right, that are... And the reason that I bring up Murktide is it's one of the... I think it was, like, one of the other better-performing decks. And it also gets... Like, the card it gets is Stern Lesson, right? Like, we talked about that on the show. It... it, it one of the things that I noticed, and maybe this is why Stern Lesson didn't see as much play, is Spell Pierce also looks like it got a lot better in a lot of ways. So that that, that could be, like... Mason, I think you said on the podcast that it could, like, it could be a victim of, of some things, right? Like, it, it wouldn't see play because of stuff like that. And, you know, you only have so much room for your one-man interaction between Lightning Bolt, Unholy Heat, uh, Spell Pierce, and Stern Lesson. Yeah, going into this weekend, the narrative was kind of, the One Ring is way better than a lot of us thought, and Living End is very good. That was kind of the narrative. And so you saw a lot of Merktide players just pack four Spell Pierces and just be like, yeah, it's not that bad. Obviously, creativity has been doing it for a while. And if players are really going to show up in force with, you know, one ring mid-rangey decks and or controlling decks and then the living end, you're going to want those spell pierces. And they're really good against both creativity and rhinos anyway. So it's not like you're losing that much. You're not losing that much in the mirror as well. So I, I think that this is a thing that, you know, we're doing this the first week after Lord of the Rings dropped, which is like why we did it too, to give some early first impressions and sort of help you all the listeners. I'm going to be very interested to see what things look like in a month from now, which is when the PT is, which is crazy to think about. And then a month from that, I think that's going to be where we really see like, okay, where does Stern Scolding actually land? Like when the metagame is known and we know things like Yawgmoth's one of the best performing decks, we know Reduke, our Perturbed Champion from Aldi One, is a avid Yawgmoth lover and has been seen playing it in challenges and leagues. It's like, okay, are like the big teams going to come with that? Is that going to affect things like Stern Scolding? What's going to go on here? So, uh, I, I think it is very interesting. It's going to be cool to see how it plays out in the next couple of weeks. But it's definitely a card to remember and like having your blue-red box. I don't know if we talked about this on the show, if it was before the show, but how how does things like Scam get impacted by this? Like, they obviously got Orgish Bowmasters their own. Yeah, I like I like what Abe said. That's how I've been thinking of the card in form of like a Brennan Six style uh, type of card that you, you get access to. Um, what are your guys' thoughts on like where Scam sits now? Um, my thoughts on scam are that i think scam actually benefits from being good against a lot of the decks that are like not getting pushed out if that makes sense like things like cast things didn't really get a lot things like cascade um decks they're naturally good against um but i think as far as like i don't know i think bowmasters i've been pretty soft on i'm not like very um not very impressed by the card in a lot of contexts. I think that the Yawgmoth context is pretty interesting because it adds a texture to the deck that plays into the rest of its game plan. But, like, the thing for me that I've seen with Scam is that really you want to make sure you're keeping the game small, and you don't need a card that punishes people for making the game bigger again. You need a card, a card that are going to keep the game in the realm of what you're playing. And I think it's just the best at doing that. And over the weekend, like on Magic Online, we saw that it was really successful in that, right? It was really successful in being efficient at punishing whatever people were trying to do. Although I do think it still has the same kind of vulnerability to 
um, like games that drag out and then the one ring resolves. But in the games that it's able to keep in its wheelhouse, I think it's like one of the stronger decks. And Blood Moon was really well positioned against just all of the four color, um, like four color, the one ring is my catch up card um, decks because as good as those decks are at using the mana um, and, and at generating it, they're not. If they can't, if they have, if they have all mountains, they can cast one ring. They can't cast anything else. So, um, yeah, I think the scam is like red aid, then the mountains. <laughs> see, not that's thinking big, but yeah, I, th I think the Rakdos just benefited from being really, really strong against the things that were known, because um, it did do it did do very well. It was very well well represented. Um, I do think that as the kind of decks get more streamlined, people figure out how to use the one ring and how to work it into, into shells that are going to be like more efficient at getting to that stage of the game. Uh, it's going to be a lot harder for them to compete, but for now they're kind of playing by a lot of the right rules to be, um, you know, interacting with the format in the right ways. So uh, one thing that I noticed is that, uh, you know, happy sandwich was the best placing hammer time deck once again, but there were four in the top 32 of the challenge yesterday. Um, and I'm kind of curious where you guys sit on one. That That's just a lot of copies in the top 32 of a challenge. I, I think that, that, you know, yeah, you know, any of these people get, you know, one or two wins. We're looking at a bunch of top eights, right? So, uh, you know, we see Forgenew in Happy Sandwiches list. We see kind of going back to that blue splash. Where, where do you guys sit on what this deck got which was a one of compared to these other decks where we're talking about like you know 13 new cards in the 75 to to something like this um i'll go first here because i think my thoughts are kind of quick and eight's kind of the hammer guy so I'll, I'll set him up for the dunk um uh so it's done pretty well there and then also in paper uh disgruntled elk friend of the show has uh travis brown's name has uh done very well the last two weeks in paper so he top uh aided the apex gaming 5k and then also top aided the 10k oh, sorry top four of the 10k showdown uh and the energy and playing two fortune in the main and just playing you know the stock mono white deck that he kind of popularized with some solitudes in it um and i think that hammer is kind of poorly positioned right now but i do think that that doesn't matter as much as you playing well up until like the GP Pro Tour level, uh, which I would also argue Magic Online like showcases are, but not quite challenges. So I, I think Hammer is very good. And if you're someone who loves that deck and you're thinking about like, should I buy a new deck or keep this one for RCQ season? I think if you play that deck well, you will do well and you can succeed, but you are sort of playing an uphill battle right now. That doesn't mean things won't change. Yeah, he's been playing I think... two four in his main deck, by the way. I don't know if I mentioned that. I meant to, but he's a big you believer did. in the four. You did. For some reason, okay. I missed that because it said mono white, and I just scrolled past it. You're okay. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not. I'm still not personally sold on Forge New. I think that all the conditions for it to be good are not for it to be like really good or not quite met. Though I do think that there's a lot of merit to trying it and seeing how good it is. But definitely, like all the lists that placed, I think had it somewhere in there. Uh, in their 75. I do think that, like we were just talking about, Spell Pierce getting better overall because people are kind of leaning on, um, you know, doing a little bit more 
uh, that's vulnerable to it in general means that Hammer cannot be too bad, in my opinion. Like, Hammer can never be too bad because it's just a really, really strong, like, deck of threats. And the more sorcery speed things that are being put into um, people's decks in order to, especially, like, the one ring, there could be a lot of times where your opponent is just like, well, you know, I'm kind of treading water. I could, like, leave open my mana, but I'm probably losing the game in a couple turns of this Urza Saga if I don't make a move. So I'll just jam my one ring and, like, hope it's thick so I can get the untap. And if you're ever spell piercing in that position, like, you're you're going to win, right? They're Now they're tapped out. They didn't get anywhere. And you're going to be un- able to untap it on your mana and just go for it. Um, and having the tools to fight through, like, there's nothing new going on that's interacting with you. People are still playing Solitude, still playing Force of Ears. And all those things are difficult and they're potent against you. They're not unbeatable, right? Th- those things have not entirely shut down Hammer um, yet. So... I would say that I'm not, well, I'm not personally sold and I still need to play more games with Forge New um, specifically, just in general, like Hammer is, to Mason's point, if you're playing it well and you are, um, you know, you're executing effectively, it's never going to be a deck you can't count on. And I think this weekend showed that, right? No matter what's going on around it, it's going to have the raw power to uh, to punch through that in ways that, that are meaningful and um you know the new tools only serve to uh to give more options to respond to what's going on around it i was think it's very punishing it, like if you like forging you uh hammer general's punishing but forging you adds a new layer of complexity with the instant speed equip once on board that i think is like possibly helping where it's like players are stumbling against this new thing i'm not saying that it isn't that is a strength of stuff, but I also think it is like adding to like, wow, this deck is hard to play against and becomes extra hard to play against once we have instant speed hammer equips added to the equation. Yeah, there's a real, um, like a real interaction I think is just not, people have not experienced a lot yet is the typical, oh, well, I have a cigar to aid and like, like the one cigar to aid and I'm attacking and it's like, oh, well, I have one ruble spell. So they'll target their creature, I'll kill the creature and then get out of it. If you have a Forge New and a Cigar Dizade, it's basically like having two Cigar Dizades, but it beats Solitude. Like, they they can, you put, you like snap a hammer onto something, and then they Solitude it, and then you can just still, before damage, move the hammer over. And that alone has started to make me move the needle on Forge New itself. Like, being able to have your first equip not be an actual equip activation, um, and then following that up with an instant equip activation, just creating a ver- another layer of you need to interact with this um, on top of things being being really, really potent. So, yeah, so there's like, problems with the card. It just depends on the interaction. It's just like another, you know, taxing their their suite of cards, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, it's another... It's another onboard thing that forces... It, it's, another, it's another piece of the puzzle that keeps your house of cards from falling. So... Uh, you want to say anything about Breach uh, before we move on to kind of modern RCQs, Mason? Yeah, Breach got a lot better. The The ring is very good. We saw Corey Baumeister win the Friday Challenge. The ring, Breach has always been a deck that has a fair, a fair game plan that's pretty good, plus a combo kill. And the one ring does that, but also adds a new combo to the deck. Where now if you have Grinding Station, 
you can sack that to your ring and then Emery cast the ring. And against like a non-zero portion of the metagame, that is going to lock them out. For example, if you know my good friend Abe Stein's playing against me, if he isn't, you know, splashing blue or playing a bunch of man types, I can start looping this over and over and he can never really kill me. Uh, while just, you know, being a card when I have my fair deck anyways. So I think the one ring has been a big upgrade for the deck and something that if you're a breach head, I would definitely look at playing at least two, probably three in your deck. Cool. Uh, any, anything that, you know, these, you know, some of our listeners that are maybe newer to modern should kind of know about this format, you know, we'll do a deep dive in modern before RCQ season, but anything that you guys think that we should kind of cover now, if they're starting, like if they're wanting to play locals to kind of get used to this, um, stuff like that. Uh, Abel, start with yeah. you. Oh, Mason, go ahead. But I, I had like three things that really jumped out to me. First is I there's a narrative going on in Pioneer that knowing your deck matters a lot. And it matters more than actually what your deck is. And while I do not believe that for Pioneer, I 100% believe that for Modern, uh, especially at the local RCQ level, where there are so many interactions and understanding what's going on and playing proficiently will get you further than the raw power of your deck will a lot of the time. And we see this where Modern is a format where traditionally players who are dedicated to Modern outperform pros at the big events outside of, you know, pro tours where only pros play essentially. Uh, and we see this happen over and over again throughout history. I think it will continue to happen. So if you have a deck that is a solid deck, you know, like what people might call like a tier two or up deck, and you just play it a lot, it doesn't matter if it's not the best position deck, like Hammer we just talked about. You know, Hammer has some real problems. It still can easily win these things, and you playing well matters way more than anything else. And it matters to all of Magic, but especially here where you have so many plays available to you on the first turn. I think people think Modern is a format that traditionally, when you talked about it in the past, there's some old, like, stigma that it is a turn 3-4 format. It is not that. There are decks that essentially win or do win on turn 4, but for the most part, Modern is very interactive and very back and forth and grindy. And uh, your deck should probably be trying to go over the top of that or engage in that in some uh, unique way or have some trump for that. And then my last thing is Modern has so much going on that if you're thinking like, oh, I've played a little bit of Modern in the past or you're new to Modern, you have like a Mad Traders or Cardboard account, I suggest getting some Modern Leagues in now just to get your hands on the cards. So I've had a lot of people have coached for a long time who are starting to like like what should i do to prepare for the future and it's like well you really want to prepare try and work at least one modern league in a week where you can get your hands on just the cards and get used to stuff and i've had so many people come back and be like oh i like didn't know this interaction at all and got me but like now i know you know and like there's a bunch of things like that that we could do a four-hour podcast on just giving you tips and we would get through about half of that stuff so getting a feel for it, i think matters a lot those are my three big things yeah, I mean, my feelings on Modern, especially, like, in your comparison to Pioneer, right? A big reason that uh, Modern is so much different than Pioneer in that is that in Pioneer, it's a form where things kind of happen in slow motion and they develop. In Modern, a lot of the game is decided, because you have so many ways to interact so powerfully and for so cheap, every mana you spend and every interaction you take at the right time, like, all these things add up in terms of what you're prioritizing and you have so many more opportunities to make a decision that if you're not really familiar with the minutia of what the best decision is versus the second best versus just a good decision, um, it will all 
feel like you're losing for no reason or like your things are getting away from you because you're not super familiar and you're not evaluating those things. Um, but any of the, you know, if you're a reasonable deck gamer in the format, to coin Mason's favorite phrase, um, if you're just picking a deck that is good, I mean, we've even seen it with a deck that we used to, um, we used to kind of talk down a bit on, like Rhinos in the past. But even Rhinos, now that it's had weeks where it was well positioned, a bunch of strong players picked it up, Rhinos was like a deck that was like, oh, is this like one of the best decks in modern right now? Is this one of the top two or three decks to be playing? And that's really a testament to the players who understand it showing off the power of the deck, right? It's operating on the right power level. And as long as you're making the right decisions, that deck can compete and can compete at the highest levels that there are. So, um, you know, keep that in mind when you're picking a deck. And when you're looking at the format is that as long as what you're doing is in the realm of what you need to be doing in modern, figuring that out and understanding the games you're playing is going to be much more important than anything else. Unlike in, pioneer where if you're if you're not intimately familiar with the deck you're playing you might be able to play something else that's on a very similar power level but does things a little more linearly or a little more right even like out muscle more of your opponents just with the cards you bring to the table but there's not that room for that delta as much in modern yeah i think you're you know to to jump onto this kind of transition right we're transitioning from this pioneer format that everybody's playing to, to qualify for rc's uh, we also just came from, you know, uh, a Pioneer RC itself. Uh, like, the you're going from a format that is about, like, its rules of engagement are, you know, you need uh, you need something to do uh, or interact with on turn one, right? It is it is very much about Elf, Thoughtseize, or, you know, a, a, an interaction spell. And you're going into a format that its, its rules of engagement are much more about resource management and understanding uh an understanding of key turns like uh and interactions and i think those are just really different right like you're playing you're playing you got you're going from a thought seize format to basically a non-thought seize format is really what's happening where you're not all playing with open information anymore and everyone has like everyone has one man interaction every every single player is going to have it they're gonna have a zero minute interaction, um, and that those are just different rules of engagement. So one of the things that I would encourage is like whether it's a coach, whether it's a teammate, whether it's just your your playtesting partner, sit down and like hammer on like what are the rules of engagement that we believe modern has that we need to go into this season with, and what what decks do we think that you know maybe we'd be interested that fit into that those rules, and like Mason said, play a few leaks, like figure out the decks from there all right anything else uh that either of you want to say before we kind of wrap up here and go to our patreon question um real quick i have two things one my thoughts on recto scam which uh, i did not want to derail us from before is i am not a like apes at a full believer on orcish bowmaster i believe as a tool in your arsenal I think Dothy Voidwalker is very well positioned right now. So I like Dothy a lot. Um, and right now that's kind of the tension is those two spots. But if you can get both in, I'm down for some peanut butter and chocolate. Um, I also think that deck is really good. And the name Scam has players uh, doubted a lot. And that you should just play it as a normal mid-range deck. And then if you mulligan to five and your five isn't good, you can go to four and still win. And you should just go to four. Um, even threes you can win on. And I, I've done it myself. Um, there's that. And then my other thing 
is I think Rhinos is good. And this is a thing that we had on the past, you know, I, I think Rhinos was bad historically. And I think part of the reason it was bad is it was built poorly and the other game was different. And now players have figured out a better way to build the deck with a bunch of main deck mystical disputes and Merc Tides. Going back to that technology, I think really helped that deck. And we're talking about decks where like some of these decks people are trying to tap out and spend a bunch of mana and just being a tempo deck is very good against that. And that is kind of what Rhino Rhinos is at its core, just a tempo deck. And I think the tempo deck is good. And I don't care much about data personally, but like if you do care about that thing, every energy event this year has been won by Rhinos. All the modern ones, Rhinos won. And there's clearly something to it. And some of the best players in the world, like you know, Nathan Storer have picked it up as their weapon of choice. And just, you know, every time they play Magic Online, play Rhinos and do well in the challenges. So um, it is a good deck. If you, you know, have those cards and you enjoy that, you've got my seal of approval if that's something you care about, which you shouldn't. But I think Rhinos is good now. I want to take time because I've dumped on the deck before, and so I should give it its props when it's good. I also dumped on Rhinos, and I will say that this is a deck that I've actually encouraged people in coaching to pick up. So, you know... uh, Things things change. Magic isn't set in stone. Formats aren't set in stone forever. So, uh, Patreon question this week comes from Donnie. If you want to become a patron of the show, head over to patreon.com slash ccmdg. And we have a uh, a place to ask questions. So Donnie asks, uh, what's your take on Orcish Orcish Bowmasters in Legacy and Modern? We talked a little bit about Modern. Uh, But apparently this card dominated Legacy this weekend. As one expected, the brainstorm pondered format was weak to the card that punishes cantrips, uh, and it, it did. I actually got to commentate the legacy NRG, which you can go check out on their YouTube channel. And the finals was Grixis. I'm sorry, Demir Shadow with Ruth being Baleful Strix, Shadow Delver, and Orkish versus the Golgari Elves deck. Essentially, basically, what you know is Elves historically is dead, and this is what those players have all turned to. In part, now due to Orkish Bowmaster making Glimpse of Nature not a card you can play and. It is very good. It's kind of like, you know, we talked about Zerk taking Yawgmoth in a direction that mimics that early from Abe, and I, I think that is true. This is just a black-green controlling deck that uses cards like Gaius Cradle to overwhelm the opponent mana, use really powerful creatures, and take over the game. And so I, I think Bowmaster is very good. I was not surprised. I am curious if Bowmaster will die for Days of Sins. We'll see. Uh, Wait, die for which Sins? Days of Sins. Oh. You know, like, a bunch of cards have just died because Days is, like, part of the format, and so is Brainstorm, and they're just not going to ban those things, which is fine. But I think some cards have been banned just because they're too good with those cards, and that's fine, but, you know, we'll see. I'll just say what I said to... When I was texting Mason yesterday, that I've been pretty high on... Uh, looking at the format, I already was high on the Death Shadow decks um, as a thing to be doing in Legacy again. Um... And I think that that card is really, really good in that deck. Uh, one, because it turns on your... Like, it's so good. It's so good. I don't have any... Like, I... I think, one, that people get really upset when their favorite format is disrupted. Right? But I actually think it just makes those formats more fun. Uh, you know, it gives you churn, right? It does stuff like this. And I think Orcus Bowmaster's... Uh, is a really good inclusion to really, like, punish Brainstorm decks. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm cold on the card in Modern, because I think there's... I think the biggest applications of the card are to be, like, 
it either has to be really getting value off of the ETB, and like two one ones doesn't really feel like that to me. Um, and like I guess dealing a damage has to be like the good part there. Um, or in Legacy, I'm like very high on it because Legacy is a front where they haven't had to pay the run in six tax in years, and now this is a card that is effectively enough. And a part that's already so defined by like a game of increments because it's so easy to like do so much for so little mana and your cards are like the most important resource. So anytime you can get up a card or up the right cards, like that's why brainstorm is so good is that you can operate on very few resources and always have the right ones. Um, and it feels like drawing a bunch of cards. This card just actually does generate more resources and take exchanges that are not typical to the format, right? It's like, it's good. It's a card that is good against the blue decks and good against the creature decks and good against like just about everything. So um, obviously going to be good there. Modern, I'm I'm still not sold. I think it's, I think unless modern becomes about drawing cards in a raw sense, I'm, I'm not going to be too... Like the one. one ring? I think if they're drawing that many cards, you're probably already dead. Yeah, you probably are. I, I do like that. It, I do think it is good in Yarmouth, but I basically echo your modern opinion. It's like in Yarmouth, two bodies and, and hitting something is kind of nice because you can like flash it in, shoot something, sack a body, make it smaller, sack a body, make it smaller, draw two. And then now you're like a three, three uh, pretty easily. And so I, uh, yeah, you would yeah. play a really good dragon fodder in your deck that's built around getting Yawgmoth into play with Court of Calling, right? Like yeah. those are all things you want to be doing. Otherwise, you know, that's like why I'm not so high on it on scam is like, unless someone's really trying to like draw two cards to turn against me and I'm going to start getting value out of this thing. Uh, you know, I want the game to be small. I don't need something that's going to punish them for taking the game big because I don't want them to do that in the first place. If you want to join the conversation, head on over to the Patreon Discord or the Public Easy Game Media Discord. You can also leave a YouTube comment. They get right on the show. Uh, we can, if you have questions or things like that, uh, leave a comment. It's actually a great way to support the show as it helps uh, the YouTube algorithm a ton. Uh, so, you know, if, if you get the chance, leave a comment. It helps a lot. You can also follow us on Twitter at CCMTG. You can also check out Sam Black's podcast, Drafting Archetype, over at Drafting Criticism. Like, sub, comment, review. There, it really is the best way to support the show. Uh, hey, where can people find you? You can find me over at twitter.com slash morenothings. Uh, and you can also, you can DM me there or uh, email me at morenothings at gmail.com uh, for inquiries about coaching. Uh, I still have about one spot opening up and I'll be like resuming doing uh, a lot more sessions come mid-July. So, awesome. Mason? Find me over at twitter.com at Mason E. Clark. I've been streaming on Twitch a bunch recently. Actually, had Abe join me on stream this past Friday. It was pretty fun. We watched the Japanese RC. That was a good time. I'm going to probably do that for the Pro Tour as well. So you can do find me doing that and playing Modern Leagues and a little bit of Pioneer at twitch.tv slash the Mason Clark. If you're interested in coaching, that is my full-time job. And I've got a couple good spots right now. It's the best time to hop in on sort of, you know, modern season is to get your leg up. So reach out to me there. You can reach out to me in email at masoneclark at gmail.com. Put coaching in the description. That way I don't miss you. I unfortunately did miss one of you the other day. Luckily I got back with you, but uh, I try my best to not miss those things. You know, but so much spam. And then uh, Twitter, Mason E. Clark. At, uh, Mason E. Clark, you can DM me there and we can discuss things as long as Patreon uh, is another way to do that. So, Spencer, where can people find you? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Spencer38H. You can find me streaming every Tuesday and Thursday on the Heezy Media YouTube channel or Twitch channel. Uh, and then I, uh, yeah, do a weekly podcast about 
Nerd Culture, and then a monthly podcast about Smash Bros. and always improving at that. Um, you can check those out on the Heasy Game Media YouTube channel. Uh, Abe, what did you learn this week? I actually did not know about the Arboreal Grazer um, Rod Farm stuff, but like hearing that really unlocked exactly, like just in that moment made it all click as to why Zerk built uh, this deck that way. Like the the looking at that thought progression between weeks was really really uh, really cool, and so I'm I'm happy for Zerk. Uh, I, they are doing really good work on an archetype that really just constantly needs love. It feels like, um, so that was that was my my big learning. Yeah, mine mine was actually just the value of spell pierce. Like I had not thought too much about how where spell pierce was sitting in the format in a while. Like obviously, the, you know, a lot of the decks like um, like creativity had started to play more of it, but I had not really put it together that oh wait, actually like every deck can kind of just do this for a little bit and pressure the format that way. Um, so my you know kind of going into getting ready for modern, you know, the decks that I, I'm interested in the same ones that I've always been right, like Burktide and and creativity and stuff. So um, it, it it will be interesting to kind of see how things can adjust i also learned that uh tron get when tron gets a new card people just always seem to crush it in events with tron which makes me think that like people just forget about tron sometimes yeah i think tron has a similar thing going on that deck that lose to fury do where a deck loses to Fury and players play a bunch of Furies, right? And they're like, all right, I got my four Furies. And they're like, all right, all right hands down, hands up, I won't do anything. And then everyone's like, all right, no more Furies. And they're like, psych. And they start playing Fury decks, the decks lose to Fury again. And this is like a month-long process as we talked about in the Discord, in my opinion. I think Tron's a very similar way, where it's like, you're trying to play four-color greedy piles and interact a bunch. Karn, Ulamog, Ugin, you're dead. And everyone's like, psych, I'm playing Spell Pierce Ragavan. And they're like, ah, all right, you got me. And we're kind of going through that cycle a bunch, but I think players are slower to pick up Tron because I think for a lot of players it's not as fun. And it's sort of like a thing that like gets down talked a lot and does have some weird like the less competitive the format gets, weirdly the worse Tron gets, because people end up having these weird cards that line up interact interestingly against Tron. So uh yeah, I, I think Tron is often underplayed, as I think Scheme is underplayed, I think Reanimator is underplayed. I think these are all decks that like should be played more, but players just don't do. <laughs> so uh my learning from this week's show is actually I really like what Abe said about Orcish Bowmaster on at the end there with Dragon Fodder. And I had like internalized and thought about like, yeah, you know, core calling it really matters, but there is something to be said about just like raw bodies. And I mentioned it with Colony Garden too, where it's like, you know, we're playing one Colony Garden or two Colony Gardens with these four rock farms. This is like a similar thing where just having, you know, that plus one mana, like a lotus petal, or something even if it dies, it like, you know, just generate a little bit with chump blocks those things really matter in the Ogmoth deck when your life total is a precious resource. So having, you know, two chump blockers against a big creature matters. We're just having two things or a one card be two bodies for the sacred cord can really add up. So uh, that was something that really kind of clicked for me in a way that I don't think I fully realized all the implications. So we had that conversation. Awesome. Well, that's going to do is let us know what you learned in the comments here on the YouTube channel. And we'll see you guys all next week with another episode of Constructed Criticism.